0: Uh, understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery, right? So we get our Bibles out every week and we, we dig in. So uh, I want to encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, grab a Bible. If you're at home, we'll be reading that in just a few moments. Genesis chapter 2, first book of the Bible, second chapter. Uh, if you're here, we do have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And also if you're using a tablet or smartphone device, We're using the NIV, the New International Version. So we are in the fourth week of our series on Christian sexuality. And uh, the first week we talked about grace and truth. That probably if you're going to go back and kind of get the foundation, the most basic foundation for this entire series, the tone that we really need to have in our lives when we talk about these subjects. Uh, that's the one to go back to. Second week, uh, script, authority in Scripture. Last week, we talked about shame and forgiveness. Today, we're talking about sex and marriage. So in our series on Christian sexuality, we're fi- finally going to talk a little bit about sex. Now, <clears throat> after the new year, uh, starting next week, we're going back to, we've been working our way through the book of Romans. And so we're going to do a short series covering uh, Three big chapters in Romans chapters uh, nine through eleven, and then we have an advent series so um, that's what's what's happening and then right after the new year, we come back and we have four more weeks where we're going to cover topics like singleness, like um, people who are attracted to the same sex, trans issues, those kinds of things so it, it gets a little bit uh, more into the weeds um, in in a few weeks uh, so we're going to pray right now, as we always do, for the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word, and we're going to look at John 16, or John 16 is the inspiration for this, for this prayer, so please, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look to Your Word, we ask that You would open our hearts and our minds by the power of Your Holy Spirit and illuminate Your Word and guide us to Your truth, lead us into a deeper knowledge of who You are, and teach us to walk step-by-step with you. We need you. We need your guidance. We need your presence. We need your help every single day. And we walk, we seek to walk in your love and in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's hear uh, one of our five oakers read our
1: scripture. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and verses 21 through 25. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they became one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame.
0: All right, so I've shared before, uh, if you've been around here and you were here on that particular weekend, I shared before about a conversation between Russell Moore, who is a Christian ethicist and a uh, LBGTQ activist, and he said it was a great conversation. They were talking about a lot of issues around sexuality. It was very civil, it was very respectful. The only thing that was a little disconcerting every once in a while was that the activist would break into laughter during the conversation, especially when he would talk about certain aspects of, uh, of the historic, biblical practices and understandings about sexuality that go back really thousands of years in Christianity and Judaism. And when he would talk about some of those, she would, she would actually kind of laugh and apologize, you know, I'm sorry, just, you know. And so she finally said this to him. She said, you're the first person that I've ever talked to that, um, not, not quite yet on, on that. Genesis chapter two, verse three. Not that either. <laughs> <laughs> not this year. She said, you're, you're the first person that I've actually talked to who believed that sexual expression should be only within marriage. And she also said that you're the only person I've met in real life who thought that a legitimate marriage can only happen between one man and one woman. And she probably wasn't exaggerating. If you live in the Northeast, if you live on the West Coast, there's a really good chance that, depending on your age, that you've never actually had a conversation with if You've met the people, but you've never had a conversation where you found out what they actually thought about sexuality. So she wasn't exaggerating. So this is, this is what she says to him. Um, she says, so you see how strange what you're saying sounds to us, to those of us out here in normal America. Seriously, do you know how strange this sounds to me?" So you know, she asked a question, and Mort took her question seriously, and he thought for a little bit and um, before answering, and then he, he smiled a little, he said, and, and he answered it this way. He said, yes, I do. It sounds strange to me, too. But what you should know is we believe even stranger things than that. We believe a previously dead man is going to show up again in the sky on a horse. <laughs> So what Christians have believed about sex and marriage is sounding weirder and weirder. Is that a word? I don't know. I'm going to use it every sermon. (laughs) It's sounding weirder and weirder to people. It's sounding weirder and weirder even to a lot of Christians. Um, But what if it's always been weird? I think we think think this this is new, and there's new aspects to it, but what if... What if it's always sounded weird? And what if it's supposed to sound weird? And there's a reason why it's supposed to sound weird. What if, what if, what if it's supposed to sound weird because we're separated from God? We, we don't have the relationship with him that we were intended to have. Um, and, and what if all the subtle ways that we try to take the weird out of our faith actually undermines things that are essential and real, and sometimes most important about Christianity. What if? Now I want to show you today that God, God's designs for sex and marriage as revealed in the Bible, it's supposed to, it's supposed to be weird, um, it's supposed to sound weird in our broken world. And we need to keep it weird, we need to keep it weird. Not for the sake of being weird, all right, I don't want anybody to leave here and start a campaign on keep Christianity weird. Okay, We don't, we don't need that. Um, weirdness in reality, if you're a 10th grader in a high school and you're considered to be weird because you have Christian beliefs, it's, it's a very uncomfortable and difficult thing. Same thing in the workplace. And so um, I'm not talking about, hey, let's, let's just embrace weirdness. What God teaches about sex and marriage is simply weird in our world. It's just simply weird. When we remove what feels weird, because it feels weird, it feels weird so we can, can kind of don't talk about it, move it out of the way, change our minds about it. Sometimes we're undermining what we believe, we're failing to glorify God, and we're not loving our neighbor. It doesn't love, you don't love your neighbor if you say something that's not true and if you consider something that God said is true to be an untruth. So today, we're going to look at this from a little bit of an unconventional angle. We're going to look at three questions. The first question is, what's weird about the historical Christian understanding of marriage and sex? Then, secondly, why is it weird? And then, finally, why is it loving? All right, that's where we're, where we're going. So the first question, what's weird about the historical Christian understanding of marriage and sex? Um, well, it's really, really important at the outset in order to get to that answer, it's really important that we know where in the Bible we can learn about what God's idea and design is for marriage and sex. And it's a lot more difficult and complicated than a lot of us maybe realize or admit. Uh, For example, if you start reading the Bible from the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, we read one of those, those passages that speak to this, if you start reading from the beginning, it doesn't take very long to discover that the Bible depicts a wide diversity of conflicting ideas about sex and marriage. It does. It just you just you know start reading at the very at the very start the first two chapters you have one depiction or really uh, I'm going to argue a definition of sex and marriage a template of sorts um, and it's it's tempting for people to just go there and jump over everything else <laughs> and ignore all the other conflicting stuff that's there. But most of Genesis tells a story of Israel's patriarchs and matriarchs. All right, So starting in chapter 12 all the way to chapter 50, it's telling a story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And Jacob's 12 sons, you know, and the 12 tribes of Israel and and all these people. Most of the patriarchs are married to multiple people. Most of them, uh, I don't know if it's most, but several of them, uh, are depicted having sex outside of marriage. And um, even though God speaks to them regularly, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a place where he says, Hey, stop doing this. Stop living like this. That's that's pretty con- you know that that's pretty complicated. As you read farther into the Bible, it only gets more and more com- uh, complicated and convoluted as you get to the kings oh, the judges, just horrible. So how are we able to discover God's intentions and design for marriage and sex? Well, most, as with most things, you start with Jesus. Uh, if you jump to Genesis, there's a good reason to jump to Genesis, one and two. but You really have to start with Jesus, because quite frankly, without Jesus, it's kind of a mess. It really is. And Jesus even helps us understand why it's a mess. Okay, so Jesus brings clarity, brings focus to where we need to go to understand God's designs. And he does it in the midst of a conversation conversation where some Pharisees, religious leaders, come to him, and they have a couple of different camps amongst them on the issue of divorce. What are grounds for divorce? And they come to test him. Whose side is he on, on this? So in Matthew 19, this this is a very, very complex passage that most Christians misread on all kinds of points. We've we've done whole sermons on this passage, kind of picking it apart. I'm just gonna point out a couple of things, so. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's one of the schools. That's what they said. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He draws from Genesis 1, and he draws from Genesis 2, and if he's going to give an answer to this question, he says, we've got to go back to the beginning, we've got to go back to the beginning. And it goes on. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? This is one of those things that most people don't understand. It almost sounds like it says Moses commanded divorce. What he commanded is, if you go to Leviticus and uh, Deuteronomy, what he commanded is that people... Um, that if a man is going to divorce his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce. And the reason was so that she could remarry. So that if she, you know, if he just divorced her, you know, with just by word of mouth, you you know, you're out of my house, uh, and it's a patriarchal society, very abusive in that way, Um, and so you're out of my house, and then went on and married another woman, she'd be like, I can't marry somebody else, or it's adultery. So that's why the certificate of divorce. Jesus replied, <clears throat> excuse me, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. In other words, it, it is a mercy. It's a mercy of God. <clears throat> excuse me. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So, like I said, there's a lot packed there and um, uh, a lot of questions that would be raised especially if if you're new to that passage. Um, But here are two things that, that I want to draw from it. One is if you want to understand God's purposes and designs for sex and marriage, G- Jesus gives primacy to Genesis 1 and 2. That's why if you, reading theology or a book on marriage, a Christian book on marriage, or hearing a sermon on it, that's, that's the go-to passage, Jesus is the one that gave us that. It's not arbitrary, it's not like, I'm going to go to Genesis 1 and 2 because that fits my understanding. Okay, um, or it fits our traditional understanding or it's a conservative understanding or something like that. No, we go there because Jesus went there. And then Jesus is saying the rest of the story often reflects God's accommodations for our hard hearts. The, the messes that you see and that God sometimes doesn't comment on at all are accommodations to our hard hearts. So after Genesis 3, when humanity rebels against God, it's a mess, and God works with us in that mess in spite of our mess. Now, the rest of the New Testament takes its cue from Jesus and returns back to Genesis 1 and 2, and it holds a high bar, and it calls us to hold a high bar with one one another, not in an oppressive way, but in a liberating way, in a helpful way, in a brother, sister, gentle, loving way. Type of way. So if you want to know God's intentions, you go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and the expositions in the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament. So, what's weird about what he says? Okay, so three things that you'll learn that are weird from Genesis 1 and 2. Um, can I have the next slide there? First one is marriage is meant to be a lifetime commitment. Now, in, you go, what's weird about that? Well, in Matthew 19, the disciples later talk to Jesus after he said what he said to the Pharisees. And you find out whose side they're on. He's on the side that you can divorce your wife for any and every reason. And they look at Jesus and they go, Well, if that's true, if that's what God wants, it would be better not to ever get married. That's their reaction. In other words, hearing Jesus, the disciples, the twelve disciples, hearing Jesus, they're like, that's weird. <laughs> that's really weird. And, uh, and so, I'm telling you, it's, it's always been weird. Marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman. Uh, the text in Genesis 1 makes that really clear. Jesus makes it very clear in the way that he answers the question. The patriarchs, if they had been there with Jesus, would have gone, what? What? that's ridiculous only one wife there's all kinds of circumstances where you're going to need more than one wife you know (laughs) that's how they would have thought it would have been weird to them and then finally sex is meant to be experienced exclusively in marriage again most of the people in the bible (laughs) a lot of the people in the bible a lot of the stories they would have considered like what that's that's really weird so the reason I'm bringing this up is because sometimes somehow people get it in their minds that ancient times were like like America in the 1950s, where Lucy and what was her husband's name on the show? Ricky. I should know, I'm Cuban, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Lucy and Ricky are sleeping in separate beds, and there's, you know not a hint that. You know, they would do anything, you know, any kind of sexual activity. And so we think 1950s is what ancient times were like, super, super conservative. It's not true. It's not, it's not true at all. And because, and what people do, well, you, you understand all those, some of that stuff in the New Testament, that's culturally conditioned it's like they're just reflecting their culture, and you got to look behind it, at the principles behind it. And we know better now, all kinds of things better, and therefore we can tinker with this and we can change it. It's like, no, 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 no. What's, no, they were going against the grain over and over again. Jesus went against the grain. Paul went against the grain. So in, in their book, Gospel Bound, the authors, um, they, they summarize some, there's a lot of research that's come out in just recent years But they say, it's not as if Jesus and Paul lived in a culture devoted to modesty. In the wider Roman Empire, freeborn men weren't expected to contain their sex lives to their wives or even to female female gender. Prostitutes served openly in the temples of the gods. Pornography, in drawings, was displayed on the walls of homes and public places. For men, having sex with a young man didn't make you weird or even gay. In some circles, it made you normal. As one historian writes, the sexual morality Christians taught and practiced stood out as unnatural in the Roman world. Not just, hey, this is their culture. It was considered to be unnatural in that world. So what's weird about the historical Christian understanding of marriage and sex? Just about everything. (laughs) And it always has been. And it's really important to understand that. Number two. Why is the historical Christian understanding of marriage and sex so weird? Why is it so weird to us? Well, the simple answer is it runs against the grain of our fallen human nature. Again, if you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible, we speak of a fallen human nature. It's what happens in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebel against God. And we have continued in their steps ever since then. And that's how we live our lives. That's how our thinking goes. So... Um, we feel like our time is different than other times. And it is. There's all kinds of ways that our time is different than other times. And our challenges are different. Sometimes, in some ways, in the sexuality area, uh, more difficult than it was for previous generations that are living. Okay, But uh, one of the things... uh, one author I was reading in an article, he, he said, here's, here's some of the slogans of today, follow your heart, be true to yourself, find yourself, love yourself, express yourself, believe in yourself. All right, so it puts the self at the center, all kinds of books on it, it puts this showing how this has developed, put the self at the center. But this isn't new. This is how humanity has always lived from Genesis 4 on this is how humanity has lived this is how your grandparents for me let's say some of us older people this is how my grandparents lived this is how they thought this is how this is what motivated them the self all right it's not it's not new the the big new thing is that people say these things and build philosophies around these things in just regular popular culture. Even some Christian books, so-called Christian books, will build an entire teaching on this and not feel any shame. <laughs> because in other cultures, this would be, If yes, we're all living for ourselves. But in other cultures, you don't just come out and say, yeah, and let's embrace it and let's live that way. All right, that's the that's one of the major major differences that, that in technology, that can that means you can you can be true to yourself in ways that n- no other generation could because of medical things that you can do. All right, so this is not new. Uh, many of you have uh, heard the story of uh, Sam Albury. He um, We've had him on video preaching, um, not to us, but one of his one of his talks, and he's a British pastor and author. He tells a story about how, when he was eighteen, he uh, when he was eighteen, he remembers the day standing on a corner waiting for a bus. He's still in high school, finishing up his high school year, and he it hit him: I'm gay. I mean, it hit him right there, you know, he's like, he's just all of a sudden, he just realizes, I've always been attracted to guys, I am not attracted to women. Uh, I get jealous when my friends start dating a girl. And he says, he thought at that point, I'm going off to college, I'll explore this a bit. Three weeks later, he becomes a Christian. And all of a sudden he's got a choice. Am I going to follow the path of Christ or am I going to follow this other path of my newfound uh, admitting what I am and what I want? And he chose Christ and he chose to be celibate, to not have, uh, to not have sex. So uh, he says this in a lot of his talks and one of his books. He, he wrote this in one of his books called God is not anti-gay, he, he wrote, ever since I have been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I have more to give up than they do. But that fact is, the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or their aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. And just as the cost is the same for all of us, so too are the blessings. You hear what he's saying? saying it is, it is weird, it is difficult, it is challenging. If it's not If the gospel is not challenging you and causing change in your life at a very, very deep level, you may not, you may not actually be following Jesus at all. Because it asks, it demands everything of us. So just to give you an example, the same author who listed those slogans um, writes, writes this. He says, the Bible simply doesn't talk this way. Discover yourself. In fact, it's striking just how differently Scripture employs the same words. So our world says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. Our world says, love yourself. Jesus says, love the Lord your God and your neighbor. Our world says, discover yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. Our world says, believe in yourself. Jesus says, no, 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 believe in me. Now, it's not that there isn't a grain of truth in every one of those sayings. There, there, there is a grain of truth there. But as a philosophy would put self and throw self as if self is God, it, 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 it doesn't work. And we all buy into it in so many different ways. Every single one of us buy into it. It is, it, is the, it is one of the most important works of the Holy Spirit in our lives to rid us of that. And we won't be rid of it in this life. This is the constant churning inside of us to want to put ourselves on the throne instead of God on the throne of our lives. The Bible is clear. You can't, it is, in, you will be incapable of living this and this at the same time. They'll always be at war and one is going to be winning and the other one is going to be losing. It's, they're completely two incompatible ways of living. Um in a really good book, you're going to be hearing me uh, quote from it, talk from it um, in coming months, I'm sure, a uh, new book by John Mark Comer. He's a pastor and author. Uh, he he tells the origin story of one of these popular slogans. So one of the popular slogans in our day is the heart wants what it wants. Okay, so if you, you got something that you, you're going to do that other people don't think Hey, that's not the right thing to do. Even you may think it's not the right thing to do. Yeah, but the heart wants what it wants. So it goes back to an interview of Woody Allen by uh, Walter Isaacson. So Walter Isaacson, you may have read the Steve Jobs biography. I think he wrote that one. And some other uh, important biographies. And, and uh, Isaacson was exploring with him, with Woody Allen, his relationship with Soon-He. And um, so... Uh, You might remember that uh, this is about 10 years ago or so, a little bit over 10 years ago. Uh, Soon he was the adopted daughter of Mia Farrow, actress, model. Uh, uh, Mia Farrow divorced the husband that she had or stopped living with the guy she was living with. I don't remember the details of it, that they had adopted these three kids together. And she had begun this relationship that lasted about a decade with Woody Allen, although sometimes in and out. She had these three kids. One of them was Soon-Hee. And so uh, one day um, when Soon-Hee was just starting college, he's a little bit older uh, when she started college, and and Allen was in his mid-50s, they began an affair together. And she was about 20 or 21 at the time. And Pharaoh discovered the affair because she was over at Woody Allen's house and on his fireplace mantel were framed naked pictures of Soon-He. Just get your head around that one. So um, this is pre-hashtag Me Too, pre-so-called cancel culture. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of people wanted to say, hey, don't, you know, don't frequent anything that, that uh, you know, don't go to any Woody Allen's movies, like I shouldn't be working anymore, all that kind of stuff. But he weathered it. And, um, and he's continued to make his movies, and about five years later, he and soon he got married, and they're still married today. But Isaacson was pressing really hard because, you know, just about everybody looks at that and goes, that's just not right. <laughs> that's just, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. And so he's pressing, he's pressing, and finally, you know, Alan just kind of stops and he coined the phrase. He said, the heart wants what it wants. That's why I did it. The heart wants what it wants. That's how he justified it. So Comer, in his new book, he said this, this off-the-cuff saying has entered not only the vernacular, the, you know, everyday language, but also the belief system of our generation. It's become a kind of a self-perpetuating justification for anything from adultery to eating chocolate cake. A kind of -of get-out-of-jail-free card for any behavior that falls outside the lines of moral tradition. Yet very few people realize its origin story. Even my most libertine, and by libertine it means kind of my most liberal, kind of anything, you know, almost anything-goes friends, okay? Even my most libertine friends, he's in Portland, so he has lots of them. Um, Keep Portland weird, I mean, that's that's their motto. Um, Even my most libertine friends would not approve of an affair between a college girl and a man more than twice her age, because of the power differential, certainly, but much less a sexual escapade where a dad, in essence, a dad, becomes a brother-in-law, and a sister becomes a stepmom. And yet, that's the story. <laughs> that's the story. Why is the historical Christian understanding of marriage and sex so weird to us? Simply put, it runs against the grain of our fallen human nature. The last question is why is the historical Christian understanding of marriage and sex an expression of God's love? Because what God created and designed is good and out of an overflow of his love. So the scriptures tell us in 1 John that God is love. God is love. And as he creates, he keeps saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. So was Jesus, when he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, is he trying to bring some kind of oppressive morality into our lives? No, he's, he's not. He was speaking out of love and compassion for us. We would do well to to hear him and to hear the scripture and to read the scripture as a message of love from God towards us. So I want to finish with one last story that I think is insightful and helpful. And I finish with this one. It's kind of extreme in a sense. Uh, But I want to finish with this one because uh, there's some of you who um, are watching online who are going to put, in your minds, you're pushing back. And you're skeptical about the Christian perspective, the biblical perspective on, on this. And so I want to share this with you. It's a story um, that comes out of something that um, uh, James K.A. Smith, he, he uses to illustrate something that he says in a, in a book he wrote recently, a Christian philosopher. Promiscuity doesn't keep its promises. So he makes that point. Promiscuity doesn't keep its promises. And then he illustrates it. Um, with a story about Russell Brand. Uh, Some of you might recognize him, remember him. I haven't seen what he's doing lately, so I I don't know what's going on. But in 2017, he was interviewed by Joe Rogan, most popular podcast, most listened to podcast in the world. Okay? And his podcast is about three hour long conversations. So if you're ever gonna complain about my sermons being too long. (laughs) Just trying. The longer I get, I'm just going for popularity. Uh, so, Brand in the interview talked about how he, for years, leveraged his celebrity and leveraged his riches, to be able to lead um, an extravag- extravagantly promiscuous life. And um, and then he says this. In the interview, he says, anything that has an orgasm at the end of it, you know, there's a degree of pleasure to be had. But it takes a while to recognize the emotional cost on me, the spiritual cost on other people, the fact that it's preventing me from becoming a father, from becoming a husband, from settling, from becoming rooted, from becoming actually whole, from becoming a man, from becoming connected. This came out during the interview. It takes a while to spot that. I think a lot of people don't get the opportunity to break out of that pattern. I would never have spotted it had I not first been a heroin addict and gone, hold on a minute, you're doing the same thing. Same with fame, same with celebrity. Because I had the template and the experiences, meaning the template of addiction, I could realize, oh this is addiction. You're expecting this thing to make you feel better. Now, in some ways, this isn't that extravagant, you know, in terms of a life of promiscuity. You might say, well, I don't live a life of promiscuity. It's It, it, you know, there are apps that make, you know, what only celebrities at one time could do, just the normal thing for a lot of people. So there's that. But you might say, well, I don't, I, I would never do that. I'm just You know, I'm just sleeping with my girlfriend or something like that. Uh, That's promiscuity from a perspective, a biblical perspective. And um, uh, even though we're not celebrities, all of us sin regularly in this area. So why is historical Christian understanding of marriage and sex an expression of God's love? Because what God created and designed is good and out of the overflow is love. And what we create and design for ourselves when we put ourselves at the center, it's not good. God can't say it's good. He won't say it's good because it's not good. It's destructive in all the ways that he talks about, um, that Russell Brand talked about. So followers of Jesus think long, deeply, Think hard. I mean, really think before you take the Bible's weird sexual ethic and start messing around with it for whatever reasons it makes you uncomfortable. We're going we're to get to some tough topics after the new year. Think long and hard if you've been fooling around with God's standards and you've been justifying In your heart and in your mind, something other than what God says is best for us. And not just for us. I think Russell Brand hit it. The spiritual toll on the people that he was sleeping with, jumping around from one bed to another, the spiritual toll on them, not just on us. Rather, what we should do is we should really think long and hard and try to understand where God is coming from and what he's saying to us. And to really begin to look at it and see its beauty, because it's beautiful, what he wants for us. And live in the, in the grace that he has for us for all the times we mess up, but also together with the people that are close to us, seek to live the life that he's called us to live. You can hold a historically biblical Christian sexual ethic for the sake of God's glory, you can do this. You can do it confidently, you can do it humbly, you can do it graciously, you can do it thoughtfully, and you will need to do it courageously. It's always been that way. It'll continue to be that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us and that you express your love in so, so many ways. And Father, I just, I just pray that we would see your love and that we would understand it more deeply, that we would live in your grace and that we would be grace-filled with each other. Give us wisdom as we navigate uh, just the cultural waters of today. I especially pray for parents to give them wisdom. Watch over them, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.